All right, hello and welcome to another episode of the Trivelo Coaching Podcast, the podcast where we talk about everything from cycling to triathlons and all the advice in between from our head coach of Trivelo Coaching, which is also my dad and the uh, 1988 Australian Ironman champion and a three-time Australian Masters cycling champion. Jared, welcome, Jared. Thanks, Jordan. Great to be here. Looking forward to another exciting episode of the podcast. And it is exciting because we have a special guest on today, uh, a member of now the Giant Subject Race Team, but he's got a pretty, pretty uh, heavy history of high accolades. Yeah, look, it's a great pleasure to uh, introduce Tim Jamison. Um, Tim's uh, um, been riding for probably 40-odd years um, of his career. Um, he's done some amazing things over his journey. Um, he's been a professional for six or seven years overseas. Um He's actually finished his master's uh, last couple of years with a win at the world title road race in Perth, which was um, fantastic. Um, so, yeah, welcome, Tim, and uh, yeah, um, good to have you on board. Thanks, Jared and Jordan. So, Tim, we want to start off and we want to go right back to the start of your journey. Obviously, we love doing these interviews because we get an insight into what it took to be a professional and your whole journey. So, we want to take it right back and go back to your early days. You grew up in Tasmania, correct? Yeah, so I'm from a Tasmanian family, grew up in Launceston, uh, and as some of my earliest memories just been around cycling races. My dad was a, an old cyclist, and after he finished his cycling career, he'd become like an administrator of the local club in Launceston, like he helped them build a bike track, and I can remember as, golly, some of my first memories is, you know, carrying pieces of timber <laughs> around with my dad, and him and a group of mates were building a bike track in Launceston. So, um, yeah, so right back as long as I can remember, I've been around cycling and, um, yeah, just grew up with it basically. So what was your first experience, Tim? Did you get on the track straight away or did you, ro- did you do some road stuff? And how old were you when you actually very first started seriously thinking about uh, racing? Yeah, I, c- I can remember being around cycling and track cycling uh, as a spectator and just a fan as a young kid. So I don't know if you're a grow up maybe in Melbourne, you at the AFL type of footy, but mm. as a kid in Tassie, uh, I grew up and we were going to cycling races, mainly on the track. Track cycling in Tasmania was really massive, massive crowds. I used to have a six-day race when I was a kid and we used to go to six-day race at York Park and that's where I really got interested in racing was there someone in particular in Tassie that was a standout that uh, drew the crowds, or was there a group of really good cyclists? Who were some of the some of the guys that you aspired to? Yeah, look. So as a kid, and the guy's still around, like living legend of our sport in in Australia and globally, Danny Clark. I, I can remember growing up and watching that guy win every race that he rode in, pretty much in Tassie on the track, um, and his like career spanned. From when I can first remember, and he still races now. Yeah, Clarkie. Clarkie's yeah. in his late sixties, but I can remember thinking, riding around on my dragster, pretending to be Danny Clark as a kid, <laughs> yeah. uh, because like he just was amazing as a cyclist, could win any type of race on the track, endurance, sprint. Yep. Um, so yeah, he was probably the guy, but also uh, my godfather. I grew up in a cycling family. My godfather is Graham Gilmore, so Graham was. Uh, when I started watching cycling and track cycling, Graham was uh, an Australian scratchman. He won the Melbourne to Warrnambool and he was a professional six-day rider in Europe. 
And from when I can first remember, um, he wasn't in Tassie. He was living in Belgium, being a six-day rider, and he was probably another guy that I thought, shit, it would be really cool to be able to do that. Yep. And that's probably the other sort of guy that inspired me to ride my bike for a living. What in Tassie was so inspiring? I mean, it's such a cold place to ride in winter. (laughs) Um, Is there something – was there just just a group of guys that – because always someone who's leading the pack and was it just Danny or was it a group of no, guys? No, I think the whole cycling culture. So I don't know whether you would, if you've grown up in cycling, track cycling particularly, there's a series of carnivals between Christmas and New Year in Tasmania. And I can remember going to them and like they get 25, 30,000 people at mm. Christmas Day event, Incredible. New Year's Day event. Yep. And that was kind of like, I don't know, going to, yeah. A festival, basically. They used to have sideshows and uh, wood chopping and running and sprints. uh, And then they'd have all sorts of cycling events. And um, that's really what got me into cycling, thinking that I'd like to be able to do that in front of 30,000 people. Yeah. So early on, um, you've you've got yourself a track bike. You're on the track. You're uh, you're having some fun in some junior races. Did you... did you realise that you had a little bit of talent, or was it? Um, look, I'm just one of the I'm just one of the riders each weekend. Was there a time when you thought, "Geez, I'm not bad at this"? Um, yeah, again, I I don't really recall. <laughs> I just re- recall the reason that I did it was because a lot of my mates were who I'd grown up at these carnivals as a spectator had all started racing, and I thought, well, I as well do what my mates are doing. Um, as a kid, I was kind of pretty well developed so it's quite strong yeah. as a young guy um but i can't really remember too much other than racing track and just going out for a ride with my mates and enjoying myself that's kind of what i can remember i don't recall whether i was really good at it or not i yeah. think i started racing when i was 11 or 12 years old yeah. uh, but i don't really recall a whole lot about those first year, few years because i was still playing AFL footy, basketball, mm. soccer, yep. hockey, like yep. all kids, you know, yep. have a crack at everything. Yep. Um, particularly there sort of in that sort of first few years, I didn't, I don't think I really actually trained. I used mm. to go yep. to some track races yep. and yep. just experienced a whole lot of different sports as a young kid. It wasn't until I was sort of about, I don't know, 15 or 16, you started getting in state teams and going to national titles. And I got second in a national title. Underage, yeah, under yep. sixteen. I yep. think I think it used to be under sixteen yep. was the first road race. No, on no, the track, on the track. Yeah, yep. in a scratch race on the track. Yeah, and I was the first year in that age group. Yeah, so I was racing guys a year older than me. And when you're a fourteen year old racing fifteen year olds, is big difference. Is a big difference. Mm. And I kind of I think I fluked it, <laughs> but anyhow, I run second in an Australian title, and that's when I probably first thought, yep. hey, maybe I can go okay here in this track business. Um. Yeah, so that's sort of probably some of my earlier memories. I can remember, though, going out riding on a Sunday morning when I started to train because I didn't train as a real young guy, and there'd be in Launceston 40 riders, you know. This is back in the... As a bunch. Oh, yeah. On a Sunday. And this would be back in the 70s. Yeah. Showing my age a lot here, but, yeah, I would have been riding in the 70s. And And there would have been some really good quality road-hardened riders who could teach you... How to ride your bike? <laughs> yeah, and um, pull you into line pretty quick, wouldn't they? So yeah, so 
again, I can remember just even in the local scene, guys, Neville Allison, probably never heard of him. Neville rode like four or five sun tours in the 70s. Yep. Uh, Graham McVilly, um, yep. another guy from Tassie who was a winner of the sun tour two or three times. And numerous Australian scratchmen and stuff on the track who you'd go out training with. <laughs> yep. And I can remember, again, when I was racing early days, restricted gears. Yes. And these guys are men racing on whatever gear they wanted to. And you go out training with them. It was so, so hard just to keep up on a restricted gear. <laughs> Your cadence would be through the roof. Yeah, you? and they wouldn't give you any quarter. They'd just sort of <laughs> just keep smashing you. And not turn around to see if you're oh, still no, on. Oh, no, no, no. <laughs> if you got dropped, you got dropped. And again... I said before, like, I remember all this weird stuff. One of the things I can remember as a kid about being just riding really hard as a kid, I would have been, I don't know, 14 or 15 when I first started training properly. And I was with this group of guys, these guys who are riding the Sun Tour and stuff, who were really strong riders. And we were, we used to ride out to Deloraine and back. I don't know how far that would be. It's like 50Ks each way. And they'd ride out easy and come back like crazy. I remember riding back with them one day and I used to suffer from bleeding noses a lot and I got a bleeding nose. There's blood everywhere all over my face and I wouldn't stop for it and neither would the blokes who I was with. <laughs> and I remember getting back to the finish and I remember Neville Allison saying to me and I respected Neville because he's a really, really good rider. He said, good job, boy. That's a, that's a wonderful yeah. That's a great accolade, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it was yeah. from a like uh, when you're 14 and someone who's I don't know how much older than me never would be. He's probably yeah. 15 years older than me. Yep, really experienced, good rider. Yep, you see, yeah, good effort, boy. Well, that's interesting because that set the scene and that's kind of the sort of rider you are. And look, I've I've ridden with you now for since uh, we we got you back into masters riding for the last I don't know five or six years, and you are renowned for being one hard nut and. Uh, and sort of giving you no know, quarters to anybody mm. who's uh, you know suffering bad luck, you, you keep up or drop off. So, what age did you say? All right, I think I can make a career out of this. I think I can become a pro and start moving towards that. Yeah. So, if I thought about it, I don't think I actually ever had a. So, as I mentioned before, one of my inspirations was both Danny Clark and Graham Gilmore, both of them who lived and raced in Belgium and rode track races. Uh, what I'd found out by the time I was 16 or 17, I'd again, I'd, I was racing with guys like Dean Woods on the track. So Dean was a junior world champion mm. in the pursuit, uh, point score. I run second to him in an Australian championship in the point score as mm. a junior. Um, but I realised that um, around then that I didn't kind of have the zing or the zip to be really, really good on the track. So I started moving a little bit towards road. Um, but I, I kind of knew when I was, I reckon, 15 or 16 that I wanted to try to see if I could be a professional cyclist. I, I kind of knew. Mm -hmm. in, uh, in, in the track or on the road? Or both? No, didn't matter? I, I didn't know. <laughs> yeah. I kind of didn't know. I just wanted the race. Yeah. Um, what do I, I kind of have in my mind or I recall is that I used to have in a circle of people that I knew or the people that I used to hate people that said, I wish I could have, mm. or I wish I had that opportunity, or if I had of, mm. you know, these are older guys. And I always used to think, well, Connie, you've got that choice. Mm. If you want to do something, mm. you, 
no one's going to do it for you. You mm. kind of need to do it yourself. Mm. And I always thought that, well, if you want to make a career or be a cyclist or be the best yep. you can as an athlete, yep. um, you kind of got to do it yourself. No one's going to come and do it for you because mm. sort of when I was sort of growing up through this formative years inside, there was no Australian Institute of Sport or mm. anyone who was or even mm. coaching anyone. Mm. It was kind of like um, if you don't do it yourself, it kind of won't mm. happen. And I'm kind of always that with most things. So yeah. I think if you're not happy with something or if you want something to happen, no one's going to do it for you. So mm. you kind of mm. got to do it yourself. And, yeah, yeah I, I can remember thinking from 15 or 16 years old that kind of I wanted to try to be a cyclist. Was there anybody who was actually helping you with some sort of, uh, hey, hey, Tim, you need to do this this week? <laughs> um, were, you just, were you just joining in the group and thinking about how you, how you could improve yourself? Or was there, some, was there some guy over there that was helping you along the way? Uh, in those sort of, again, my memory's not that great around it, but I can recall my dad. Dad had been a cyclist all his life, so he obviously, and he had coached and trained people. Yeah. Um, and I can remember being 15 or 16 and being so keen for someone to tell me to go out and do this session or do that ride or go ride up some hills, and he never would. <laughs> I kept saying, how far should I go today, Dad? And he'd say, oh, how are you feeling? Oh, yeah, I'm a bit tired. Well, you train how you feel. That's what he used to say. That's great. You train how you feel. That's gold. And I, I kind of didn't know what that meant, but I'm actually, I actually learnt what it meant. And I still do it now. Yeah. So if I don't feel any good, I don't train hard or I don't ride hard. Mm. I actually don't train really that much at all anymore. But I can remember as a kid, mm. I couldn't. I, it took me quite a few years to get my head around what he meant. Mm. And then I worked it out. Great advice, really. Um, there's a fine line between being lazy mm. and knowing yeah. or your body telling you that in you kind of need to have a rest. Yeah, in tune with your body's rest. Yeah. Really and that's what I've learned probably yeah. out of. Yep. His philosophy of train how yep. you feel, yep. but don't be a lazy prick. Yep. You know, like so. Yep. Oh, yeah, I'm tired today. I won't train too hard. Yep. So yep. I train or I ride hard when yep. I feel good. And if I'm a bit off colour, whether I'm a bit yep. sick or whatever, I don't ride hard. Once you started uh, <clears throat> getting a little bit of success on the track and on the road, and you're in your 16, 17, 18 years yep. of age, um, you, uh, you've told me some stories uh, over the over the, the times we've been riding side by side and. And it's not just about getting fit on the bike, was it? You you really went hard with ex- exploring as many opportunities to improve your cycling, didn't you? Yeah. Yeah. So initially, I can recall sort of I don't know. I made a junior world championship team when I was seventeen, and that really woke me up to exploring more than just riding your bike. Uh, and before we did the, the world champs as a junior, I think we spent like a week or two weeks at the AIS in Canberra. Yep. There was a guy called Dick Telford there. He's mm. pretty uh, yeah, hardcore Dick Telford, yep. uh, athletics coach, I think he yeah, was. Yeah, from WA, wasn't he? And at the time, there wasn't a cycling AIS, so we just went to Canberra and did a week's, two weeks training there. And they did things like VO2 tests and skin fold tests, and he just straight out looked at me in the face and said, you're too fat. Wow. Uh, Was that a bit confronting? Yeah, for a 17-year-old kid who's Mm. sort of made his first national team and thinks he's going okay Mm. and probably a month out from a world championship that I've been training pretty hard for, Mm. he just said, yeah, you're too fat. Wow. Didn't pull back anything. (laughs) And that was pretty confronting. 
And then we did this VO2 max test and I blasted everyone because <laughs> I just raced them because I was the last one on. And I, I'm, you knew their scores. <laughs> I just knew their scores, so I just beat them. <laughs> Out of so, curiosity, do you remember your No, nah, I would not have a clue. Would not have a clue. This would have been... That would have been good data. Early 80s. <laughs> yeah. And I would have been punching okay at the time, I reckon, 17, 18-year-old. Mm. Uh, yeah, but i got no idea. I, numbers don't mean anything to yeah, me. Yes, you know. We know that. <laughs> I wouldn't have a clue. Yeah. Um, but, yeah, that was probably the first. So I went and rode the World Championships and did really well and did some racing as well. That was actually happened to be in New Zealand. Yep. I don't know, maybe in the early 80s it was. Yep. And... Um, but after that, his words were still ringing in my head. Did you do anything about being too fat? Did, not then, did, no. no did, it, did, it, did you say, well, what do I, how do I reduce yeah, my skin so folds? what you? I did was, I, this was sort of getting, I think the World Championships were the back part of the year, um, you know, September, October. Mm. I did those. I raced a two-week stage race in New Zealand afterwards and rode really well. So it yep. wasn't Informed. affecting me terribly. Yep. Yep. But what I did over the summer is... Um, so that next sort of pre-season, oh, yeah, I really explored my diet yeah. uh, and just was then become, well, I just educated myself about yeah. what was superfluous, mm. what wasn't, mm. what not to do. And I kind of got on a real, I don't even know the name of the diet that I went on, mm. um, but my mum was really helpful. She was interested mm. as mm. well in just healthy lifestyles and um so you became pretty so, strict with what oh yeah, yeah man no but i lost like eight kilos wow over that next summer so dick was so i went from somewhere on. like i don't know what i couldn't even tell you what i would have been but i would have been you know 78 79 kilos i went to 72 mm. and then all of a sudden man did i take off as mm. a road rider because mm. i didn't lose any power mm. and um yeah, I could climb all of a sudden and still mm. sprint. Mm. So Dick's words were... <laughs> well, yeah, kind of. He probably mm. wouldn't have had any clue that he had, had mm. any influence. But, yep. um, yeah, it changed, almost changed my physiology mm. quite significantly mm. through, um, yeah, just starting to watch my diet. Yep. And yep. then the other thing that I kind of started exploring was making sure... Probably not at that time, but the other thing I started exploring was the psychology of getting the best out of yourself. Getting your head right. It's kind of not that easy. Um, I've got a terrible, poor level of concentration. <laughs> That's why you don't like time trials, mate. <laughs> yeah, no, it's one of the reasons, yeah, because I'd actually drift off. I'm out, I'm out riding, you know, I ride at TT. I'll be five minutes in and I'll be thinking about, oh, I wonder what will be on... Uh, the menu for night for dinner. <laughs> it's not really the best thing to get you going very fast mm, if you lose mm. concentration. So, I again, I just read some books, yep. talked to people yep. about how they maximise their potential. And I used to hate kicking myself, and I still do now, after races when you know you could have been kind of better. Mm. So what I never wanted to do was have any regrets after any races. So I explored... I still remember the name of the book, Sporting Body, Sporting Mind. It's like mm. probably a 25-year-old book. Mm. But those principles that that book talked about is the way I race. Right, yeah. So Not so. ever leaving anything to chance and making sure every time that you throw your leg over the bike with a number on that you explore every way you can to extract your maximum. Mm. That's kind of what, what yep. in a sense... 
yep. essence the the book talked about. Yep. And yeah, I spent then probably four or five years trying to really perfect my mental approach to both training and but mainly mm. racing. Mm. I've never been a really, really great trainer, mm. but I've become a pretty good racer. Yep, yep. You think those early days in those, those big bunches with the experienced uh, riders really crafted your knowledge of how to sit in a bunch, how to, you know, was, was that, was that the, the thing that really set you apart from a lot of other guys who maybe hadn't had the experience of being in those, you know, really top riders? You're riding with top riders. In As a young guy, yeah, I reckon. <laughs> I remember too being on restricted gears, unless you actually knew what you were doing. You were straight out the hoop anyway. Mm. So um, certainly as a young guy before I was, I think even as a junior when I was a kid, you were on restricted gear. So I probably mm. rode with men with a handicap. Yeah, yeah. Even though I was probably strong enough to ride proper gears. I was riding with men for three or four years where I'd have to be really crafty to be able to stay with them. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, yeah, I, I expect yeah. that it kind of did. But I don't know, I think there's also a bit of a sense about riding and you can see guys who know how to ride. I think racing guys that are a lot better than you, you just kind of have to as well. And I did a lot of years racing guys who were a lot better than me. Mm. And, yeah, just where to ride in the bunch and where where to sit under the wheel and where to ride up in the gutter and Mm. how to do that. Mm. If you don't do it, you're kind of just out the hoop, so... Mm. So how did you how did you turn pro? How did you move from yeah. Tassie to Europe? And- so I can remember so the first sort of before I decided. So in that sort of period when I was racing juniors and stuff, working a job happened to be a painter. <laughs> so it's really interesting. <laughs> I can remember why I got a job as a painter because family friend who um, was a cyclist happened to have a painting business. Yeah. <laughs> So I went and did a painting apprenticeship when I was a kid to start off with. But really it didn't matter what the work was because I had my sort of sights on on racing for a job. So really being a painter and working as a kid on the tools was just to get some cash so I could save up to to get to Europe. Mm. Um, I did that year in juniors where I raced okay. And then pretty much the next year I'd saved up enough money to get a air ticket. And I can, How old were you, Tim? Uh, 18. Yep. I went to Europe for the first time. I was just 18, I think. And uh, I've been just over. Tell 18. me about the contacts you had set up and uh, what what was waiting for you in Europe. And you know, yeah. the, the red carpet was obviously um, laid out for you. How did yeah. how so, did you go about getting to Europe with uh, contacts? I don't know how it even is now, but certainly in the I think I went 84, 1984, 85, somewhere around there. For the first year, and the only place you could actually race in Europe without a sponsor was in Belgium. So, and again, because I knew Graham, family friend, who had been living in Belgium for years before that, he'd since retired and gone back to Australia, but um, he still had lived in Belgium for 10 plus years. So he kind of knew some people, and they were kind of quite influential people. I can remember that he wrote three letters for me, actual handwritten letters that he put in an envelope for me and, and wrote the guy's name on the front. And um, one was a guy called Patrick Sircou, who's the most successful six-day rider ever. He's won more six-day races than anyone ever. That's a good start. Including mm. Danny Clark. Yeah, well, at the time, he was the Belgium national track coach yep. as well. 
He wrote me a letter to Eddie Merckx. Oh. He's probably the best road cyclist of all time. Yeah. And he wrote me a letter to a guy called Ted Wood, who happened to have been his mechanic. Yep, okay. And I had these handwritten letters. And Were you just hoping to run into him, were you, Tim? Or? Pretty much, because <laughs> he didn't know where they lived either, I don't think, so he just wrote their you names. You couldn't ring on him the f- on the mobile no, either, could you? Couldn't, couldn't ring him. Couldn't Facebook have, them or LinkedIn them. Or- none of that. <laughs> so you give me these handwritten letters. So and other than that, you had no contact? No. no so you no, caught no. a plane to Brussels, Brussels yeah, Belgium. Flew, flew into Brussels, into Belgium. <laughs> With your saved up money from painting? With my saved up money from being a painter. And uh, I, I can't even remember how I got to Ghent. So against the centre of yep, you cycling train, in Belgium, and so I well, got a train. Maybe you unpacked your bike and rode. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't recall. I actually don't recall, but I remember. No, I actually didn't even take a bike with me. That's right. I actually saved up enough money that I thought I'll buy one of those fancy European bikes. Oh, far out! <laughs> you went without so a bike. I didn't even take a bike with me, so didn't need to unpack the bike, <laughs> which was actually a real mistake in hindsight because. I just thought, you know, Ghent being the centre of cycling, I just walk into a bike shop and buy a great bike mm. and buy it cheaply. Turns out they didn't have my size and I ended up spending the first two weeks without a bike. Oh, no. <laughs> but, but you've gone to Ghent with no accommodation. No. So I found a YMCA um, and went and stayed in the YMCA for a while. And your but, Flemish would have been fluent by then from Tassie, wouldn't it? Yeah, none. Zero. <laughs> Never lived out of home before and uh, in a country where I can't so speak the language. You're in a YMCA and you have to cook for yourself? Uh, yeah, that didn't have cooking facilities, the YMCA. So you had to eat out there. And that was a temporary thing because I actually did have a contact for a lady who had like a, an apartment underneath the street level. Right. So I ended up <clears> staying in the centre of Ghent with a lady called Rosa de Schnurk. Who's really was quite famous amongst Australian cyclists because lots of guys used to go and stay with her, but I couldn't get in there to start with because it was already full. full. Yeah. So I had to wait a couple of weeks in the YMCA. I didn't have a bike anyway, so I can't even remember what I did, but <laughs> not much to start with. This is like I think it was what Feb- month? February, yeah. so it was just like freezing. wet and freezing cold and shitty. You and wouldn't like, want to be out there anyway, would you? No, but kind of I did. But very yeah. similar to Tassie, actually, isn't it? So, yeah, then I got into this place downstairs. I just had my own little one room and shared a bathroom and this little kitchenette thing. Yep. I and stayed there for so, the first year. So your bike, you got yourself a bike? Yeah, I got a bike from the local bike Can shop. Can you remember what brand it was? A Jatan? No, I did ride Jatan for two years, but not not initially. It was an Italian bike. I don't remember don't the remember. name, yep. but it was sold yep. by the local. So, again, there's an, a really famous bike shop in Ghent called Plume. You took Plume Vancouver, mm. and it's still like now set up like it was in the seventies, yes. yep. and it's like um, kind of like a museum to cycling almost. Yep. Yep. So I got a bike from there, my first bike yep. when I went there. So you started training then um, mm. with what was your plan? Oh, I didn't know at the time, but pretty much in early part of the year, there's not a well, not a lot of races. You can race two, three times a week in March. Yep. And they're kind of classics type of races. How do you get in there if you just yeah kind of just turn up and race? Yeah, not that easy. Yeah. No, I didn't realise that when I went mm. there. But yeah, you have to don't have to enter a long way out, and you could. I can't remember how you used to enter. You used to have to buy the newspaper, and it'd tell you how to yep. enter. Because you couldn't just go on the internet. No, no, there was none of that There's online no entries. So did you find one of the three <laughs> three best people with your letter? I found one of the guys, yeah, at one of the races. Sir Koo was at one of the races. Yeah, um, just ha- accidentally. 
Yeah, 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 because the Belgium national team was. Did you have your letter with you? Yeah, I did. (laughs) You walked up and handed it to him. Yeah, Yeah. I did. Didn't help me actually. He he wasn't able to do much. (laughs) But uh, one of the guys who did help me a lot was this guy Graham's mechanic, mate. And he used to pick me up and take me to a couple of the early races and help me get entered, which was cool. Then I got the. (laughs) It was really funny in this first, in the first couple of months I was there racing. I had a couple of reasonable results. Yep. And like an Aussie racing in Belgium in March uh, is kind of quite a bit interesting for the locals. Unique. So <laughs> my local cafe where I used to go to kind of eat and stuff, they formed a supporters club. So, you know, there's a taxi driver and a butcher and a few <laughs> people in this They're uh, your first cafe. sponsors. <laughs> yeah, they were my first sponsors. And essentially all it was is like being down at the local pub and they just have a whip around and get you some money. Unreal. <laughs> and I can remember, like, um, I'd be in there and they'd say, oh, how'd you go? I'd say, oh, I'll punch it both my tyres. And they just whip the hat around and get you enough money to go and buy some new tyres. Yeah. And that was in my first couple of three months. Yeah. And I can remember, I can't remember his second name, but Patrick was the taxi driver who was in the pub all the time. And he used to pick me up and take me to races in his taxi. Awesome. <laughs> That's so good. How pleased would the pub would have been when he came back and said, I won. Yeah. Yeah, it was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, in hindsight, I did. at the time, I just thought oh, it was pretty nice that they do that. <laughs> oh, yeah. But it's kind of not uncommon because in Belgium, lots of riders, not a lot of big sponsors for the smaller riders. And they kind of used to have these supporters club and you just support your own local rider, basically. A bit like supporting your own footy team. Yeah, kind of like, you yeah. know, if you're supporting the Paran, whatever the Paran mm, footy club yeah. is, just going down the yeah. pub and having yeah. the meat raffle. Meat raffle, yeah. yeah. Well, used to whip yeah. the hat around and, oh, yeah, just different sport. had two punches this week. The young yeah. fella will get him a new pair of tyres. Yep, yeah. yep. Yeah. So, yeah, supporters club and they used to take me to races and, yeah. It was interesting. It's unbelievable. So did you get picked up after a few races? So what I did is I raced um, pretty much that whole first year in Belgium, dicking around, doing some good races, had some okay results. I can't. What was the break from Belgium to a, your first team? Yeah. When, so when did you get on a team? Yeah. In that <clears throat> first year, I did that. And then during, I can't remember what it was in, might have been in the summer, the mechanic that become a friend of mine. Yep. He was also the mechanic to Alan Piper. Alan was racing. Alan's a bit older than me, but Alan was a top-line pro at the time, racing for Panasonic. BMC's director. Yeah, he's one of the directors right now. now. So he was, um, he was still racing professionally for Panasonic, and he was the same mechanic. He used to, Alan used to go to him. And Ted, the mechanic guy, said to Alan, oh, this kid goes, okay, I reckon get him a ride somewhere. And... Um, Alan had been tied up with a French club team sort of thing. And he introduced, well, he told the director from this French team that he should watch me in one of the races. And um, did, yeah, you they, know, did you know that at the time? No, no. I had no idea. Yep. And I went to this race on the French border near Roubaix. And I think I finished eighth or ninth or something. Yep. And at the end of the race, the guy said, um, where's all your stuff? You're coming back to Paris with us. So I didn't bring my stuff because <laughs> no one said I needed to bring my stuff. <laughs> and, yeah, at the end of it, they drove me back in again and I got picked up all my stuff and I went to Paris with them. And that was it? Yeah, pretty much. That was then, um, it was a it was the athletic club of Boulogne-Biancourt, which was a really large French club 
and they were the sort of feeder team. So we raced Renault Elf Chitar was yes. the sponsor, and it was at the time Eno, uh, Fignon, those guys were racing for the pro team. Right. So I rode in their sort of feeder. Sort yeah, of. the feeder team for yep. two years. Right. Yeah, for the rest of that year and then the whole of the next year. So you lived in Paris then? Yeah, I lived in Paris yep. um, and raced with them, and that was really interesting. Whilst it was an amateur team, it was like full pro. Yep. Um, we did – so they had a – in it was the biggest club in France. So all of the regional French top riders, that recruit them. Yes. Yep. And they used to have this um, dormitory in Paris where everyone would just come mm. and they had full-on massage, mechanics mm. workshop, was full pro. Mm. I lived there for a year and a half. It's pretty cool yep. when you're a kid. Yep. Uh, and they'll cover all your accommodation, yeah, all your food. take you to races, yep. give you your No entries, yep. No, no, yeah, no. Yep. And well, I did some really cool races there, Tour of Brittany, a lot of pro-am races, but yep. the smaller ones. Yep. So I got yep. to race sort of against the pros then. Yep. And did you go okay in that? Oh, I went really good in the, They used to have all these point-to-point races, um, and they always started in Paris and finished somewhere out in the countryside. Yep. And the first... In the first month that I raced with them, they had their own club, well, yep. their club's sponsored race. And, you know, you can't not win your – the team needs to win today. It's so, like, yep. they brought all the top riders in that were on the, on the team from all over France and there was, like, I don't know, there'd be a couple hundred people in the race, but there was 25 from our club. Yep. <laughs> this is like, the sponsors are here. Yep. You can't yep. not win today, you dickheads. <laughs> and – we had all the best riders anyway, yep. um, but I got in the break of four, and there was three from our club. <laughs> <laughs> Were you the best sprinter in that four? No. no. So what I did, and in hindsight, it was the best move I made. I made the race for the other guys, yep. and after that, my life was easy. Yeah, team player. Yeah, I finished fourth yep. out, of, out, out of four, four. Yep. and probably you know out the hoop a bit in yep. the finish, but we got one, two. Yep. And that was it. Kind of made my – showed that I was prepared to ride for the team. Yep. yep. And kind of for me, whilst it was a big race for the French guys, I didn't give a stuff really. It was just another race another for race, me. Yeah. Yep. So I didn't really mind sacrificing my chances. And yep. I didn't really think about it, but afterwards the director said to me – Good job. He didn't say – he didn't kind of say nothing. Just give me a thumbs up. So yeah. I thought, hmm, maybe that's okay. Yeah. And after that, then I had a really good time there racing and I got to race – the amateur version of Paris-Roubaix, which was exactly the same course. It's like 260Ks or something, um, and finished podium. Never won a race. You finished yeah. on the podium? Not in Roubaix, no. no but no. in a lot of these Paris – well, they used to call yes. the Paris Classics. Yes, okay, yep. Paris-Orléans, Paris-Briere. Yep. There was like all yep. of these, and I finished yep. on the podium on a number of them, and that was yep. Yep. like the best amateur races yep. in France. Yep. It was really hard to do. Usually from the team that I was riding with, um, two or three pros every year would come out of that team and they'd go straight into uh, Fignon or um, Eno's team, yep. which was the biggest team in France as yep. well at the time. So it's and a pretty cool time. Were you, were you close with your teammates being an Australian and being French, especially after you sacrificed yourself for them, did you? Um, a bit cutthroat, was it? Yeah, because they're all trying to race pro as well and living in a dormitory. I was one of only about four that was in the dormitory all the time. So the races are always on Saturday, Sunday. Yep. So on Friday, all the French guys would come in. But during the week, there was a pommy guy from Manchester. 
a Danish guy who was junior world champion in the world champs that I'd ridden a couple yep. of years before. So he was yep. an amazing rider. He went on to race pro as well. I think there was one or two French guys. There's only about four or five of us who stayed yep. in the dormitory all the yep. time. But on the weekend, there'd be 20 people in this yep. dormitory. Yep. And mechanics and massage people guys coming and, and people coming and going mm. all the time. Mm. So, yeah, I can't say I got really tight with them. Mm. Pommy guy was a good guy. Danish guy was a good guy. Mm. I used to go out. Okay. <laughs> Remember the stupid stuff. <laughs> the Danish guy was a really good rider. Been world champion in juniors. So we were sponsored by Renault. So he had a Renault 25 in the early 80s, and the car talked to us. It's one of those cars that you could talk to in the 80s. So he was like kind of really right up on the top of the <laughs> echelon in the team. But he was a real lad. Yep. He used to just fly back to Denmark for the weekend to get on the gas. <laughs> but when he was stuck in Paris, he was a party boy. So he used to take us, and the fun thing we used to do when I was living in Paris, we'd go to the Champs-Élysées in his car, because he was the only one who had a car, and we'd just go round around the Arc de Triomphe. There's like about 12 lanes of traffic, and he'd say, let's see if I can get from the inside to the outside. <laughs> it was pretty cool when I think about it. At the time, just being a lad, and I used to like going with him because we'd always stop at McDonald's. <laughs> yeah. Um, so, yeah, it's, uh, it's really interesting. Um, it's, uh, how, how, Tim, did you um, get to function in terms of finances. So they've covered everything. Did they yep. give you a wage? Yeah. What, what, were you, yep. did you have, what money did you have? Or were you just using your savings? Um, no. So pretty much if you think about it, if you're dedicated to your sport, you actually kind of don't need much money when mm. everything you need to live is paid for. Yeah. So in that, after that first six months in Belgium or however long I was there, the next year and a half, wouldn't have been getting much money, probably something like 150, 200 bucks a week. Mm, that's not bad in those but days. But when you don't have to pay for anything, mm, mm, like mm. I didn't pay for anything, petrol, food. Would they take all the prize money for the club? Yeah, and then and divvy it up at the end of the year. Yeah, okay. You just yeah. get one draw at the end of the year. <laughs> right, okay. That would but be. they're always stooged, yeah. Every year, every year <laughs> over race, they've got stooged in prize money. Every year. The, yeah, the but, dumb Aussie. hey, the, I didn't kind of care, yeah. to be quite honest. Yeah, I know right. all the, the locals, they used to win their guts out, the French guys. Yeah. But I didn't care, really. Because yeah. I was just like, for me, it was like living the dream. Mm. Yeah, what was your lifestyle like? Were you happy? I mean, were you just ruined from training? And- <laughs> Again, I, I keep saying to you guys, I, I remember the dumb stuff. <laughs> I can remember it being in Paris, and where we lived was about 15K from the shadow of Versailles. Mm. And I can remember on my days off, on Fridays before races and Monday after, after weekends races, I'd ride to the shadow of Versailles, I'd ride around the gardens a couple laps, I buy an ice cream and go to sleep in the park. <laughs> hey, you say, "How was your lifestyle?" Yeah. I think mean, that's pretty awesome. Yeah. <laughs> when you think of it, I didn't think of it at the time. Mm. I thought, "Shit, I've earned an ice cream. It's Monday. I've had a hard weekend racing. I just go and have an ice cream." Your day it. off. <laughs> yeah, and then you think, "Oh yeah." Now that I look back, because I was oblivious to where I was living, Paris, and you think, "Oh yeah, shadow of the sign. That's just some bloody good park. Garden. It's good, yep. nice, quiet roads." <laughs> Now you look at it and think, yeah, there's like 500 tourist coaches there. <laughs> Daily. And people go there from all over the world just to have a look. But I was completely oblivious to the culture mm. and everything mm. of that. But, yeah, I was kind of having a good time. Kind of having no, a good apart, time. Apart from your ice creams, I mean, what was, what was the highest point for you in that whole six, seven um, years? Well, what happened next? But You left that team. Yeah, so I spent two years, well, a year, so a year, bit of time in Belgium, 
And even when I was racing in France, we used to go back to Belgium to do races yep. and we used to go down yep. to Spain to do races yep. and stuff. I did, yeah, I said Tour of Brittany and some really good races there. When did you start to get onto some of the real pro races? Yeah, so after that, it was again, stupid. Yep. At the end of the second, well, that second year, I'd come back to Tassie and see mum and dad over Christmas oh, and okay. stuff yep. and just do a bit of training and then go back overseas. Yep. And the second year I was back, I was training in Tassie and there was a couple of Swiss pros there. I think they were in Tassie for the Christmas carnivals, the track racing. So I actually was out training with them. And I took them out on a training ride and, yeah, left them <laughs> up the back lost. of nowhere. Lost up the back of nowhere. And was just, I was doing, a, you know, a pre-season ride. And I had all plans to go back to France again to race. And they convinced me that I should go to Switzerland to race. Yep, and they got, got me onto a team there. Yep. And I can remember they said, oh, yeah, we can get you 500 bucks a week if you want to come and race in yep. Switzerland. That's a bit of a... And I thought, yeah, shit, that is a lot more money than what <laughs> I'm getting now. And um, so, yeah, I went, went then. I just rang the guy in France and said, hey, I'm not going to come back to France. See you later. And that was okay? Yep. Yeah, he was okay with that. Yep. Um, and then I went and raced in Switzerland for three years. Right, okay. Uh, yep. And they got me onto a – I think the first year I raced for a team called Allegro there. Just, again, really small Swiss teams. Yep. There's guys like Steve Hodge was racing there. Yep. A couple of other Aussies. And at the time, they had some top-line pros. There was a couple of pros in Switzerland that were racing, like, first three, five riders in the Tour de France, Zimmerman, Broy. Yep. Yep. Raced with all those guys. And raced – a lot of in the countries around Switzerland. So Switzerland had some good one-day races that really suited me, Championship of Zurich, um, various sort of other what were considered Swiss classics. Again, I was able to podium in those races. And that was a good lifestyle then because I was earning good money. And again, same deal. Uh, I think a couple of the years that I raced there, I got my own apartment, did my own thing. Um, had my own car, all that. Yep. Raced a year in Geneva with Scott Sunderland as well. Yep. So Scott was racing and living there. So Scott went and raced pro yep. quite a bit as well. Um, but just had a great time. Switzerland yeah. was more yeah. kind of like Aussie lifestyle, I reckon, than France. Yep. Uh, really good standard of living. Had a lot of fun. Did some great races. That's when I raced Tour of Luxembourg. I would have raced um, Paris Nice when I was living yes, there. Okay. Yep. Um, so you're really now in the, yeah, pro, I was racing in the pro races. Good, yep. good, really good races. And yep. all the Swiss races were really hard and really yep. good. And they suited me. Lots of circuit races in yep. Switzerland, yep. which really suited my capabilities. Had some really good results there. Where else did we race? We would have raced in Spain during those three years. Well, tell us about Paris Nice as a as a tour. I mean, that's a big pre Grand Tour yeah. stage race that yeah. that you would you would have been pinching yourself with. Yeah, again at the time I was just kind of like, okay, you know, worries, let's go and do that. I, it's probably after it you recall that shit that was actually a pretty big deal at the time. Yeah. Um, yeah, I got to the finish of it, no trouble. I was not troubling the judges terribly often. <laughs> uh, so your role I, was a domestique in your yeah, team? Yep. Yeah, I can remember. So I mentioned the guy that I raced with, the Danish guy that I raced with in Paris. He'd, he'd become pro for um, 
Renault and he raced in, in Paris-Nice, the one that I rode. And um, I remember him going off the front in the tailwind with 200 kilometres to go in a stage <laughs> and he won. Oh, my goodness. And I thought, I've barely been able to stay at the back of the bunch and you've ridden off the front of the bunch in a tailwind for five hours by yourself. How is that possible? Mm. And, like it. and I, I, I can remember how hard it was and how windy and shitty the weather was. Mm. But other than that, I don't have – the only other thing I can remember of Paris-Nice was riding the final time trial on the Caldez. Oh, right up your alley. You're yeah. the time trial <laughs> specialist. <laughs> and uh, I can remember how miserable that was because it was pissing rain. and It's always a climb, that one, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. so Caldez is yeah. straight out of Nice. Is, it's straight up the hills. was traditionally the last stage of Paris-Nice yeah. for years. They it don't was, do it yeah. that much anymore. No, they don't, no. But uh, I can remember doing that, and I think I can remember thinking to myself, yeah, I used to see pictures of people in magazines doing this. Uh, now yeah. I'm doing it. Uh, that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah, that's fantastic, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. So had yeah. three years there, which again, and I planned to go back there again after that. And again, I don't know what happened, but in the off-season, I had another deal to go back to racing in um, Switzerland, and I really enjoyed it. Good people. Yep. Found myself somewhere really good to live. There were yep. some other Aussies around. Michael Wilson. Yeah, he's in a Tasmanian. Michael Wilson, Tassie yeah. guy. He was an amazing road rider, Michael. He's, one he's a very successful guy, isn't he? he? Yeah, and Michael was living in Geneva at the same time, so I really loved it yep. there. That yep. was really cool. Um, but, yeah, in the off-season, I don't know, I got some tie-up with an Italian team. Yep. I ended up going there to race with them the next year because, again, I don't think the deal was any much better, or but it was another country yeah, and some bit of a change. Yep. Yeah, yep. so I went and raced for Fanini in Luca in Italy. Yep, and that was really awesome as well. And what a great place to live, Luca. Yeah. For those who've yeah. been to Luca is uh, a walled little city and got some of the best riding. In yeah, the so yeah, Ivano Fanini's had a pro cycling team there for still does. Again, yep. just really small teams. All the teams yep. I rode with yep. Yep. weren't your really big budget yep. pro tour teams. I think I can recall, yep. you know, even in Italy alone, there was like 30-something teams yep. and like Fanini's team would have been amongst the bottom quartile. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. We weren't a big budget team. Yep. And, but we're still really good, you know, getting yep. to live in a Italian village and race. Again, I rode Torino Adriatico, hmm. rode all the major Italian races. Our team didn't get to ride the Giro yep. that year. yeah because we just weren't even amongst the better Italian teams. Yes. But I went and raced in the time I was in Italy, a couple of years, we went and raced all over Europe. I did some sort of semi-classics in yep. Belgium. Yep. We raced Route de Sud, yep. which okay. is across the south of France, yep. which is a really sort of yep. big tour. Raced in Spain a lot yep. with them. Yep. Uh, we went to America and raced. I raced US Pro. Was this with camps? the Italian team? Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, I rode the US yeah. Pro Championships, which was a big it's race. A big cir- it's a big circuit yeah, of racing, well, isn't it? In the 80s and 90s when I was there, US Pro Champs was the biggest money race of the whole year. Yeah, you've told me about these races. and Yeah, it was amazing. Criterium style. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. they have, they used to race in Philadelphia, uh, US Pro Champs, and ride up a thing called the Maniac Wall. And it had become quite iconic, it had been going for quite 10 years. Here I rode at Le Monde Road, yep. lot, lots of really large riders. So I can remember riding up Maniac Wall and it was like just a wall of people. It's yeah. like you're riding through people. Yep. And um, the Italian team that I rode with, we finished third, fifth and ninth. 
And that's that's pretty phenomenal because the yeah. prize money in the US yep. was astronomical compared to Europe, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, well, and plus they paid you after the race. Yeah, the Americans just wrote, wrote you. <laughs> Greenbacks after, and I finished ninth, and yep. two of the other guys got in the first five, and that was the biggest payday I think I ever had on the bike. I think we all, after everyone got their share, I think we like got twelve thousand US each in in the eighties. In the eighties, yeah. yeah. I, Stands out a little bit because I've never been pretty happy with that. <laughs> a few ice creams with that. <laughs> yeah. So did some really cool stuff. Yeah. Racing in Italy as well. Yep. yep. Good times. Um, so the Italian team would just go to US and do three or four weeks and then come yeah. back. Yeah. 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 Again, it was Pick I some think races. at the time it was when the Giro was on. Yes. There's no okay. other races in Italy. Yes. Okay. Yep. And Americans were really keen just to get any Europeans who would come yep. and yep. race. Yep. So yeah, they, they were the teams that didn't get into the yep. Giro would yep. often go somewhere else and race and yep. my lot just decided to go there because I think yep. the Americans paid them to go, yeah, quite okay. honest. Yeah. Um, yeah, some of the some of the most standout things that you can recall and, and maybe even some of the things that were really hard at the time when you were as, as a pro. Yeah. Um, I think I, I think as a, as a athlete what I had my limitations – I found I worked that out. Um, And my problem was I couldn't win the big races. Yep. I had some wins, but not big races. Um, I'd win criteriums or I could win kind of like, I suppose, not club races because there was pros in them, but the smaller races I could do well in and I got some results in. Yep. Um, But in the big races, I could always get have good races but never get great results. Yep. And that was probably, you know, my capability. Yep. And I kind of worked that out. Um, but, yeah, some of the things that I thought were really amazing that I were able to do, that I can remember finishing second in a really large race and I put up an awesome ride. In, it was a final stage of a tour in Spain where I've gone from nowhere to second overall and second on the stage, but no one really cares about second. <coughs> but for me... I thought, far out, I didn't know I could do that. Yeah. But I got no accolades for that. Yeah. And I thought that was an awesome ride. Yeah. Uh, and I'd ridden away for some really good bike riders, but no one else sort of thought it was that good. Mm. Uh, I can also remember, again, racing in Switzerland one of the first years I was there and big, quite a big pro race. And I'm finished in my first year racing sort of in, in that level of riding and finishing with two really experienced pros and finishing third. And I can remember my boss, the bloke paying the wages, come up to me after and actually said, that was fucking terrible. Why? <laughs> Why didn't you attack him and try to win? Yeah. And I Different. kind of thought, he's kind of right. Mm. But what I was just really happy that I'd been able to keep up with these guys. Yeah, it's a different mindset. Yeah, isn't it? and he, yeah. he was just really angry with me, said, you know, you just should have tried to win. You, mm. you didn't try to win. Mm. Right. Mm. Did that have an effect on you uh, in r- later racing? Oh, yeah, absolutely. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So they're real lessons that you learn. Yep. That doesn't matter how good the guys are that you're mm. racing with, mm. you still got to be thinking about how you're going to beat them. Yeah. So you learn that the hard way when you think you've done a great ride. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, George, because Tim races masters, higher level A-grade masters riding now. Um, in local Melbourne, Victoria, and we would have really good Thursday nights at Sandown. And 
you know, Tim wins a lot of those races mm. now, but some of the races he comes second or third, and and early on I'd say to him, oh, well done, and he go, no, nah, yeah. that's not well done, yeah. and I think that comes from that. Maybe, yeah. And you've really, you've really not been happy with yourself, unless someone's better than you, you you're quite happy to accept that. I was done by a better guy, but normally it's I've stuffed it somehow. Yeah, and that certainly comes because what I did learn racing overseas is actually, well, you see now the podium's usually just the bloke who wins. You don't off they don't often put second or third on the podium, Mm. and kind of that's what sponsors think as well. Yeah, kind of need winners. Yeah, yeah. Well, tell us tell us a little bit more about that side of things and what you took from that period. For the rest of your life, because it's a pretty intense period of pro racing. What's yeah? What you, I don't know. You don't you don't think about it at the time, but even in you know, I sell paint for a living now, <laughs> and it's taught, taught me to be very resilient, very self sufficient. Uh, <laughs> I can remember when I, I I got a job after I finished cycling in my early thirties, and uh, people were where I was working were complaining about, oh yeah, this office is really cold. Mate, <laughs> yeah, I appreciate the heating doesn't work here, but yeah, the the alternative is some of the stuff that I've done for a job where I've been hypothermic because the office that I was working on was getting snowed on. <laughs> so I think it's sort of given me a perspective for that we've got an awesome life. And <laughs> also the other thing that probably did for me was build this into my psyche that if you want something done or you, you want someone to change something, f- f- you got to do it yourself. Like no one's going to do stuff for you. Mm. And that kind of, even though you're racing in a team and you're, mm. you're in a sport where it's a team thing, no one comes around to your house in the morning and says, go out training. Mm. You kind of got to be motivated mm. to do it yourself. Mm. And I've certainly found that my sport has sort of set me up in a way that I'm very motivated for the job I do now because mm. it's kind of mm. easy comparative to yeah. riding around in the snow. Yeah. <laughs> Self-reliance seems to be a standout thing. And, look, I've witnessed that in the way you race now, um, that, you know, you don't wait for anybody else. And we've all often talked on the bike together about um, do you want to be a participant participant in the, in the bunch or do you want to be a playmaker? Yeah. And that's one of your philosophies, isn't it? Yeah, it's called being a racer or being a chaser. Yeah. <laughs> and I don't want to be a chaser. Yep. I want to be a racer if I go to races. And kind of what you guys got me back into was realising that I could like that. Mm. I, I, I didn't do it for, a, I don't know, 10 plus years yep. Yep. there during my 30s. And when I met Jerry and Frank and started doing some riding again and they badgered me to come to some races, <laughs> uh, I thought, I don't want to race anymore. I've had enough of racing. I don't think I'd enjoy it. And then I went to a race and I realised that I kind of do mm. enjoy that competitive stuff. And I kind of find it quite interesting now even to do some open races where you shouldn't really, like I'm 53, I shouldn't really be able to keep up with 23-year-olds. Yep. But I find that quite challenging yep. now as well when I go yep. to some of those races over summer just to test myself to yep. see if I still can. Mm. And I find it really, really hard, but mm. it's kind of, yeah, it's quite... You have to use all your cunning and craft mm. to be mm. able to even be 
I've got to finish. Yeah. What was one of the lessons you told me about when you first met Tim? You told me a story about how he berated you for something you did in the break. I can't remember what it was, but Tim just said, that's crap, Jared. <laughs> <laughs> Do you remember? No, I can't remember that story. Sorry, George. But um, I was, I was going to say um, Tim's uh, modesty was uh, when we very first met each other, He's uh, he was uh, state manager at Dulux, I think, and uh, uh, Frank and my brother Frank and I have a painting business. Obviously, that was our link. And we won an award um, to go to New York uh, for the amount of paint we'd bought or something. And uh, anyway, it was a bit dodgy, I think. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, but uh, I just started talking to Tim and he's asking us a lot of questions about bike riding and I had no idea who Tim was. Yeah. And it, it's never I've never forgotten this, this day because uh, I was sort of saying, tell me, do you ride a bike? And he goes, nah, no, I'm not a bike rider, I'm... But he knew a lot about what we were doing as um, on Beach Road with our little Celtic uh, um, kit, and um, he was just—he just knew a little bit too much about <laughs> what was going on. I went home that night after I talked to him for about an hour, and I got nothing from him, Mister Modesty over here. And uh, I googled him, and here I found he'd raced in Europe and he'd been in three world titles. He'd actually rode three world titles for Australia, mm. um, which we haven't even mentioned, mm. and. Uh, and I rang him back and said, you prick. <laughs> anyway, um, that was the sort of person that, uh, you know, I really, I really like to surround myself with people like that who are, um, you know, let their actions do the, the, the um, rather than their words do the, uh, the speaking for them. And, and so Tim, I got him to, you know, I really had to talk him into coming back mm. to race. He said, look, I don't want to start because I know I'll get hooked on it. And, you know, I didn't realize, you know, how really much of a good rider he was. And he came on one of our Saturday rides and he was that unfit. It wasn't funny. <laughs> and yet he just smashed us in the, yeah. in the sprint. <laughs> he had not lost his sprinting yeah, ability. No. But uh, yeah. that was really good uh, Good to, to meet you at that time. And um, one, one of the things that um, we can talk about a little bit later, but um, what, what was the ending for you? When did you decide that? The pro career was finished and, and you wanted to get back to yep. normality. Yeah, so I think I was 23, 24. I've been yeah, a number of years now racing in Europe and enjoying every minute of it. One of the things that was really interesting that happened during that period was the Iron Curtain come down. So East Germans, Czechs, Poles, Russians, they were never racing in pro races because mm. they were always Olympics and amateurs mm. basically. And the year that I was in, the first year that I was in Italy, that um, one of the Italian teams just sacked all their Italian riders and hired the whole Russian Olympic squad because <laughs> the Iron Curtain had come down. And these guys needed to ride. And these guys all then were able to go wherever they wanted to and race. And there was lots of East Germans and Czechs and Poles that had been pretty much on this communist regime where they weren't getting paid. Mm-hmm. They were just part of the state. <clears throat> So what that did in cycling in Italy for a couple of years there, um, those guys would all race really cheaply mm. and race really hard. Squeezed you out. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, kind of. So it come to a point where they said, well, hey, you know, the the salary for a rider now is not what it used to be because there's all this influx of cheap labour, basically. <laughs> Very similar to what happens in the painting business, Tim. Yeah. So... Um, uh, the idea was, hey, you can come back and race, but you're going to get paid less. Mm-hmm. Oh, shit. Whilst I really enjoy what I'm doing, it's a people think, you know, you see Robbie McEwen and these guys winning Tour de France stages and stuff, and that's the sort of guys you see on telly. You don't see the guy that's finishing 
mm. 45 minutes behind in a lot of the races carrying the raincoats and mm. <laughs> finding his way to the hotel with a pump and a spare tyre in the back pocket after mm. a race. Mm. Uh, it's a really hard way to make a living. Mm. Um, you know, winter's really harsh and mm. summer's really hot and whilst it's fun, mm. like when someone says, you know, you can take a pay cut, and mm. no, no, no. So it was a turning point really? Yeah, it was kind of yeah. for me. Um, and I kind of think through what we talked about before, through diet and through sports psych and through training, I'd kind of explored, explored. Mm. What, I th- what I wanted to achieve was it achieve my potential. Yep. And I thought that I'd done that. Probably in hindsight, I stopped being... You know, 24 is pretty young, and I don't reckon I'd reached my physical maturity. But at the time, I thought, well, it was quite common for cyclists to stop in Italy, where I was racing, in their early 20s if they hadn't really made the big time. Mm. Um, because lots of guys trying to get those spots, and mm. a lot of Italians were stopping. You know, oh, shit, this is mm. too hard. Mm. Going home and live with mum and eat pasta and stuff. <laughs> and it's a pretty good life as well. <laughs> Um, so, yeah, I decided that um, I actually almost stopped for a year after that. Mm. I was 24. I got a little bit disillusioned with some of the stuff that was going on and decided that, you know, I'd just stop racing. I just went back and lived in Tassie. Yep, okay. When I was 24, yep. 25. I actually spent a whole year um, trying to work out what I wanted to do. Did I want to keep racing, mm. not mm. racing? Mm. And I didn't ride my bike much for maybe a year. Yep. I was thinking about going to America because I'd enjoyed racing there and there's plenty of opportunities at the time. But I just decided to stay at home for kind of a crossroad a year. Yeah. Yeah. And then a good friend of mine in Tassie, (laughs) it's a really interesting story. (laughs) Giant Bicycles Australia had just kind of started up. (laughs) This is serious in the late 80s, early Mm. 90s, and they started importing bikes into Australia. Good friend of mine was in the bike industry and said, look, hey, we're looking for some riders, want to get a bit of a team going. And I started racing for giant bikes back in 1989, 1990. That's gold. And I rode, uh, then I, after having sort of nine, ten months off, started racing, um, well, training and living in Tassie, but sort of racing semi-professionally around Australia. Mm. I rode like Sun Tour four or five times, Melbourne to Warnables, mm. all of those sort of pro mm. races because mm. you could kind of make good money in the back part of the year. They used to have mm. a lot of, other mm. tours, it wasn't mm. just a sun tour. Mm. So you could ride Midlands through tour. winter mm. and you'd race these races at the end of the summer. I made really good money mm. riding them, you know. You win a race here. Yep. I think I rode three or four Victorian championships, a couple of Australian road titles, yep. four or five sun tours, Melbourne yep. Warnables. Yep. Yep. You make really good money mm. just through riding them. So mm. I did that from the time I was about 26, I think, through to 30. Mm. And then I'd really had enough for cycling yep. by the time yep. I was 30. But, yep. again, that was a really good part of my life because what I'd, I mentioned before, that I probably wasn't at my physical peak when I stopped racing overseas, 24. Mm. Mm. I got really strong in my late 20s and mm. I was a really strong... Plus you had experience yeah. racing. Oh, my yeah, goodness. I was really strong in my late 20s and yep. won some good races here, you know, yep. won a couple of Victorian road titles, yep. got third in Australian road title. Um. Yeah, I got third in Melbourne to Warnable, fourth in the Melbourne to Warnable, yep. sixth in the Warnable. I, I had yep. four starts for four top tens. Yeah, yep. okay. Yep. Um, yep. Did lots of racing like that where you can earn really good money. Mm. Yeah. Again, mm. so mm. kind of worked a bit of part time work and 
yeah. did yeah. semi-professional racing yeah. as well. <laughs> what was the thing that would kept you going in the back of your mind? You obviously you had a you had some sort of passion for bikes, didn't you? Was it um, the love of riding a bike that was keeping you driving you on, even though you'd sort of got a little bit disillusioned with Europe? Yeah. And- oh, I actually just love being outside. Mm. Um, yeah. So outdoors and cycling gets you outdoors. Mm. Um, but also this um, still probably even more so today I actually love the I call it good tired Mm. it's just my way of but I love the feeling of having worked out and feeling good tired after Mm. aching Mm. I still do Mm. Sunday afternoons best afternoon or best time of the whole week Mm. when I've probably ridden Saturday Sunday and my legs and my body's aching, mm, but it's like ache, good tired, mm, and I really mm, love that. Yeah, and I think that's one of the things that I I learned to love mm, about riding the bike. That mm. now, actually, what also keeps me riding now is I enjoy the cycling and the camaraderie of cycling as much as ever, probably more than ever. It's not about uh, accolades at mm, all anymore, mm. um, but also that this thing that. I see a lot of friends, family who, as they age, don't age terribly gracefully mm. um, and get out of shape. And because of that, they suffer a lot of ill health. Mm. And I kind of don't want to be unhealthy. Mm. I want to mm. be able to do motivator. stuff. Yeah. And it kind of motivates yeah. me. Yeah. I've got some good buddies, <laughs> yeah. guys into their 60s. And like, mm. not a lot of 60 year olds are in great shape. And I find that terribly inspiring because mm. I kind of want to be. Mm. You know, I'm not that far away from it, but mm, mm. when I get there, I kind of want to be an active person yep. as yep. I age, and that's kind of what motivates me yeah. now. And for those of you who don't know, uh, Tim's part of the Giant Celtic race team, um, which is now obviously sponsored by Giant, which is ironic from that, that 80s, 90s team that Tim was in in Tassie. But we've got a group of nine or ten very like-minded people that have been selected by Giant, and we've been going for almost 10 years now. And, yeah... All of the group um, have that camaraderie, that that passion, that that really enjoyment to just go ride your bike as a group and get that satisfactory tiredness. Yeah. Um, and you want to surround yourself with people who are kind of motivating. Um, and it, we have some great bunch rides together and have a bit of fun and uh, and yeah, take the piss out of each other, which is <laughs> which is you know part of it. Um, and it's a great little group that we have. And sure, we go to races to try and be you know semi serious. And we try our best when we've got a number on, but uh, that's kind of one of the things that that I was so pleased with. You joined our team uh, midway through, um, and we've we've got other similar riders now. We've interviewed Julian Painter and uh, Darren Young's another uh, pro rider that's in our team who rode in Belgium for six or seven years uh, as a track rider, and you know has won um, two Australs. And so we've got a really good group of people and. And I think for those listening, that's kind of what you need uh, if you want to keep yourself, just what Tim was saying, fit and healthy and, and age uh, gracefully. It's really important that you surround yourself with with people who are like-minded and uh, not going to drag you down. and um, Motivate you. Motivate you. Yeah. yeah. Um, so just at the end of your career, I suppose, uh, you know, we have sort of done a few good things and one of the things that we decided to do was go to, to Perth um, when the... The UCI decided to have the world titles uh, in Australia, and uh, and you said, "Oh yeah, I might have a crack at that." And I've got to say, witnessing your training regime, it was like <clears throat> you'd gone back 
30 years because you put your head down and you knew exactly how to go about getting yourself ready for that race and uh, witnessing you win that race was, uh, I'll tell you what, it was one of the more exciting things. I was there that day in my own race and I got to see you win the sprint finish. I haven't seen too many sprint finishes being won by two or three seconds, which is unusual. <laughs> so you actually flogged them in the finish, which, uh, yeah, was that something that was uh, good fun and a good experience for you? Um, really glad that I did it. Um, <laughs> I don't th- – look, I wouldn't have done it without yourself and um, Frank kicking me in the butt to mm. say you should mm. give it a go because I hadn't considered it at all. Um but kind of once I commit to something like that, once I've made a commitment in my own mind, I know exactly what I need to do because yep. I wouldn't bother yep. going. I wouldn't turn up unless I was going to have a serious crack. Yep. And I needed. I know I, I can remember thinking to myself, okay, I've committed to this now. What do you need to do? And I knew that for me that means three months worth of just training properly. Mm. As I said, I ride now. I don't train. Mm. I just go for a ride mm. and I ride hard if I feel good and mm. I won't ride hard if I don't. But I train properly for three months and I suppose having ridden a bike now pretty much for 40 years, I know what I need to do. Mm. My, my body, I don't need anyone to tell me. Mm. And mm. I, I know when I'm being lazy <clears throat> and I know when I need to back off. And, yeah, I train really hard for... Three months, I reckon. And, and look, simply for me, that is actually getting off Beach Road mm. to train properly here mm. in Melbourne to get um, proper training, mm. what I would consider just right up in the Dandenongs <laughs> where, where you live. Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. like, um, no, I hear you say it all the time, but you always have to be on the pedals. Mm. Going downhill is not even easy up there because mm. the roads That's are rubbish. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, I just rode up there every Saturday for three months. Mm. Mm. And... <laughs> Again, instead of just riding two days a week during the week, I rode three mm. days a week. Yeah, yeah. you um, used all that experience, didn't you, that you'd yeah. gained? So I just knew, knew yep. how to prepare for yep. it and yep. think I just found myself in reasonable shape. Yep. yep. Probably the best shape I've been in for a long time. Yeah. Bit of a broad question, but what do you think it takes to be a good rider? What do you think? Someone that's, that's yeah, not I, so good. I, I think it's really easy. You just got to love riding. I don't think you can make yourself a good rider well you can improve what you've got you've got to be passionate but you just got to like riding i don't think you know i see a lot of guys over the last you know 10 15 years cycling's become a little bit trendy i suppose so you see a lot of guys pick up a bike go and buy an expensive bike and ride it for two years and they kind of do it because it's popular Mm. but they don't really love riding Mm. it's a chore for them to get on their bike Every time I think it's a chore, I just won't ride. Mm. Oh, I don't feel like riding that. I just won't ride. Every time I ride now, it's because I want to ride and I enjoy riding. And kind of, I've kind of always been like that, I reckon. Mm. And maybe if if I thought really hard about why at different periods I haven't re- ridden, it's because I haven't been enjoying it. Mm. So and I think it's the same in what I do for work. If you don't enjoy coming to work and selling paint, which is what I do for a job. Mm. You can't actually be really good at it, mm-hmm. so I kind of—that's kind of a bit of a philosophy in all mm. things for me, whether that's mm. work or sport uh, or whatever it is you choose to do. Unless you enjoy what you're doing, uh, you won't have that much fun at it. Yep, and you won't be ever really, really good. Hmm. That's 
pretty simple answer to a broad question. Yeah, definitely, definitely. One last point I wanted to touch on, which I've found interesting between you two, is I know you have differences in your approach to training because you know that dad really likes data and really likes um, power and FTP and training to numbers, as well as just writing. Um, And I know that you take the piss out of power numbers (laughs) and really couldn't care less. So explain your thoughts on that and why you don't. Um, I'm at a stage in my career where I do really just do it for health, fitness and enjoyment. And I couldn't think of anything worse. So I don't train now. So for me, having to think about data and numbers and stuff means training. Doesn't mean I've not trained that way. Yeah, but I have trained that way in the past. Don't worry. When I was in my twenties, I never left a stone unturned, and I used to. I was doing training programs and efforts and intervals. If you had the information available to you now, um, if you had that back in the eighties, you would have you would have been all over. Yeah, so I, I used to have a heart rate monitor in the yeah. 80s. It was yeah. kind of like a yeah. thing about as big as this microphone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and look, that's the one of the things I love I love talking to Tim about because I know he takes a piss out of our, you know, our power meter and he's up, he's riding 14 watts today <laughs> and, and uh, dial it up to 18 watts and it's hilarious. Um, but I know deep down that had he had that information back in the 80s, he would have been all over it. He would have explored it, yeah. absolutely, because yeah. if there's anything that you can do to give yourself an advantage or make sure again all anyone can do is extract their potential Mm. so if that's something that helps you extract your potential well why wouldn't you want to explore it but for me now i've passed the stage of actually really being that concerned about it i just want to ride and be outside and have commitments to meet friends and ride my bike and have a laugh um so it's all too complicated for me now to actually at a stage in my career where it doesn't really matter to me, mm. I'm not looking mm. to improve my whatever those things are that you're trying to improve. <laughs> Tim's I'm not- got a power meter on his bike, but he's actually <laughs> no idea what his watts are, which is brilliant. I yeah, so I, I, I just figure now if the guy in front of me is going too fast, I'll slow down. Mm. Uh, I don't need to hurt myself that much to throw up to stay on his wheel anymore. Mind you, that doesn't happen in a bunch of No, but... <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> but- but, um, yeah, I, I don't know. It just doesn't appeal to me at all now mm, in yeah. what I want to get out of cycling now, which is be mm. fit and healthy, mm. have some fun, and be outside. So riding on the other thing that I really despise around cycling now is riding in your garage. Mm. Just, for me, that defeats the purpose of riding a bike. And, yeah, I appreciate from a fitness point of view, it might be a part of your program that helps you get fitter, mm. but I'd rather drink a cup of coffee and sit at the kitchen bench than mm. sit in the garage and ride my Zwift or whatever it is you do. Mm. Not at all interested. And we like that side of it because we've spoken about on other podcasts, the mix of using power, but then when you're on the road, using common sense and learning how to ride, ride, your, bike. Yeah, ride, yeah. ride your bike properly. So I've, I've got this other view that, um, you know, you can have all the power known to man and i've heard you guys talk about it before but if you don't use it at the right time what's the good of it mm-hmm. so you might be able to imp- through training and, and and riding the right regime you might be able to improve your power by 10 15 percent but that doesn't help you at all if you actually put that additional power down at the wrong time in a race mm-hmm. probably helps you quite good in a time trial mm-hmm. when you measure yeah. it in effort yeah definitely yeah. Um, but yeah. in actually a road race which is kind of what i like and mm-hmm. what i enjoy uh, I can beat guys who have got 
mm. 25% more power than me. Mm. Just Because yeah, they use it at the wrong time. Yep. Yeah. And why is that? Just timing? Oh, it's a bit of experience Intuition. and knowing when mm. to put it put the yeah. put the power down. If you mm. put the power down at the wrong time, going downhill into a headwind, <laughs> yeah. it's just kind of pretty dumb. Yeah. Uh, whereas, uh, yeah, if you want to put that extra power down 150 metres out when you find <laughs> yourself in a good position at the finish, that yeah. might be a great idea. That's yeah. <laughs> how so you win a world title. <laughs> yeah, kind of. Mm. No, that's good. Is there any more questions you wanted to ask? No, I think uh, I think pretty much um, really enjoyed uh, listening to Tim's stories. And I know we've talked a lot over the years. There's a lot of things that he's told me um, um, on the side that probably um, probably best not mentioned on on uh, yeah some really funny stuff that's happened. But it's really good to ha- have Tim explain um, how how a guy can have a pro career yet not be a Robbie McEwen. Mm. Um, and there are plenty of guys who have going to Europe and, and for one reason or another, real potential riders in Australia um, who just haven't actually got the breaks um, that, that other riders have had or opportunities haven't been there. You know, we, t- we joked about having a letter, um, but, you know, had he not run into that person, you know, uh, at some stage his career might have been completely different, you know. Um, so it's been really uh, good for, for hopefully for our listeners to, to understand that, you know, um, things just always don't have to be handed to you on a plate. You actually have to work for things um, and create your own opportunities. And I think that's a really good example of what Tim's shown. He's had a, re- a good crack at, you know, six or seven years as being a pro, rode some great races, had some really good results, um, had some great experiences, and will probably you would not regret anything. No, um, not one bit. And, uh, you know, obviously you would love to have been a... a a more substantial pro rider on the podium, but that's just the way it is. And yeah, I think if, again, if I can, the thing that I think is that all you can do is get out your potential. Yeah, and I kind of did that. Yeah, so I'm so content. I don't have any. Mm. Oh, I wish I could have won this. Or yes. I wish I could. I don't have any of that yeah. at all. Yeah, that's and fantastic. It, yeah. it comes from. I don't know. It's just your your own makeup, isn't it? I, I can remember thinking. Listening to old guys when I was a young guy saying, I wish, wish I had it. Yeah, yeah. And I don't ever want to wish I had it anything. I want yeah, to do. Yeah, and yeah. you want to explore everything you can to yep. do the stuff that makes you happy. Yeah. And look, the experiences you had, you'll remember for the rest of your life. And it's been such a journey for you as a young kid, um, really just you know, taking on the world sort of thing. It's, uh, it's pretty oh, It kind of shapes you as a person, doesn't yeah. it? It yeah. becomes the person you are. Yeah. Yeah, because of those experiences. Yeah, certainly you're a very good uh, people person now with the job you're in now at uh, Australian manager at Dulux and and yeah, you're very successful at that selling paint and because you're passionate about it and it comes through. You love what you're doing, whether you're on the bike or or at work. And uh, yeah, it's it's uh, it's a really good example for people to understand that you actually won't succeed that well in life uh, or in anything recreational unless you really love what you're doing. Because if it becomes a chore. Um, you know, you might as well stop doing it. Um, no, that's perfect. Um, a bit of a long one today, but uh, Dad asked me a couple of times over um, doing some of the podcasts, what's the length we want to go to? And I just say there's no time limit if it's interesting. And I was really excited to have you on, Tim, because I knew the stories you'd tell would be interesting, and they were, and there's absolute <laughs> gold in this. And the stories Dad's told me over the years of just some of the stuff that you mentioned today is just absolutely awesome to hear. So I think we'll definitely have you on again, maybe with, with Dasha, because you two together just – 
Um, it's like a house on fire. It'll <laughs> <laughs> be very funny. But yeah, thank you very much for coming on. It was really, really good interview. Yeah, thanks, Tim. No trouble at all, guys. And we'll uh, see you guys in the next episode. Thank you very much for listening. Uh, as always, leave any feedback on the Anchor app or feel free to ask any questions that you want us to cover in terms of topics or you can recommend some people to interview and definitely let Tim know if you enjoyed this interview. Thank you very much. We'll see you on the next episode.